Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Brad Hintz is, we're thrilled to have Brad Hintz with us. With New York University, he's been in that interesting position. Really, I sort of think of Peter Fisher at Blackstone like you, where you've really had substantial experience in academics, in uh, the devil's playground known as Wall Street, and also in American industry, which makes it a pretty rare combination. If I go on the Bloomberg, Brad Hintz, J.P. Morgan Equity, and look at their financials, we forget the, the the ginormousness. That's a CFA word. You learn that. I know it's like later on in Stern School. The ginormousness of Mr. Diamond's uh, effort, $92 billion in revenue, bringing down uh, 30% plus to operating income. Total assets, $2.5 trillion. We forget how big these things are. Does Janet Yellen know how big they are? My guess is she's got a lot more of awareness than I do or our listeners do. Yeah, she's she's very much aware how big they are. And <clears throat> that's one of her that's one of her challenges, right? I mean, if you think of what has happened since Dodd-Frank, the Fed has gotten much more involved in the regulation of the banks than it did in the past. And so now she has regulatory responsibilities. And she has her running an economy responsibilities. Yeah. The two don't really, really match up perfectly uh, all the time. Uh, so, in the case of uh, of the big banks, you know, they are they are large, and we don't want them to get larger. Uh, but and all of the regulations are telling them to get smaller. They can't merge, can they? I mean, I'm doing some quick math here, and I've got J.P. Morgan's total assets is 13.7% of one-year nominal GDP. And it that's can't, amazing. That's right. So, you know, if you're, if, if you're Jamie, you've got to get the most out of what you've got because you can't go out and do material acquisitions. He can do technology acquisitions, and you're probably going to see that over time, which is the banks, despite the valuation of their stocks, really aren't going to allow the, the you know, some of these startups in the shadow banking system to, to, to get away from them. They'll buy technology in that way. But these are going to be mm. small acquisitions. No. You're not going to see the Manny Hannies and the chemical roll-ups and the Chase the, the, yeah. or the old NCNB story yeah. over again. Brad, you're, you and I are the only two listening that know what Manny Hannie is. Michael? No, actually, we were, uh, you know, I was up fishing with Dennis Lockhart of the Atlanta Fed the last couple of days, and uh, he was talking about running into somebody who worked for J.P. Morgan down in Georgia who said they'd been with the firm for some 30 years. And Dennis started ticking off every bank that has been merged into J.P. Morgan and said, which one did you start with? And I think the guy he started, he said, uh, with uh, the National Bank of Detroit. So, um <laughs> 
<laughs> you 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 don't have that anymore. Uh, but is is the new environment, um, Brad, uh, changing the calculation for banks in terms of how they want to make profits? Because the least profitable thing is what we think of as banking at this point. And uh, do, do the regulations and the added costs imposed on the banks maybe work uh, counter to what the regulators would like, driving people into the businesses that the shadow banks do? Well, I think that's very, that's very true. Um, but there's actually a, 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 another problem that exists, you know, with the changing regulations over the last five, six, seven years. Um, the banks have been spending all of their development money in their technology on regulation. And so you really see, haven't seen the banks keeping up on the technology of their core businesses. They've delayed it. And they, that's natural, right, because they have a more pressing need in, in terms of this. And so that's one of the reasons why you've seen all the little startups popping up, and they've done very, very well. And it, it strikes me that, that what will happen over time is the Federal Reserve is going to encourage the banks to go out and, and buy some of these startups and, and bring them in because they don't want to lose control. They don't want to have a giant shadow banking system taking off. Your observation about the, um, about the banks looking for a different business model, absolutely. You know, their business model in capital markets is broken. You know, you can't take risk. You know, think of the old model of capital markets. You know, if you were a large institutional investor and I was a bank, I would give away free trades, free liquidity to you. You'd send your trades to me. I'd see all the trades. There would be some – I'd be able to, to, to take positions against that flow. I'd make money from, the, from the, the, the profitability of my trading business. That model's broken. The trading businesses aren't generating – well, if they're generating single-digit ROEs, that's spectacular. It's it they're they're actually, by my estimate, more like a five percent ROE, pulling down the returns of the of the entire operation. And so, what you have in the banks right now is banks clinging to business models, waiting for their competitors to throw in the towel, and uh, and and they're not. There we have we've seen banks cut back. Morgan Stanley, UBS. Uh, on their on on their capital markets business credit suisse, but no one is throwing in the towel at this, which unfortunately leads to this prolonged period of low ROEs. Well, has anybody figured out a way to to beat that? I mean, as Tom says Jamie Dimon can do it a quarter here and a quarter there, but has anybody figured out a long term strategy for what the bank's profit center is going to be? Hmm. Well, you could look at Wells Fargo, and you can say Wells Fargo may look at its trading. Pardon me, at its its capital markets business is sort of opportunistic. I want to go after profitable parts of the of the business. I have a large retail business that's mm-hmm. perfectly fine, um, and and. And you can see Royal Bank of Canada. I have a profitable business in Canada. I I, I do opportun. I'm, I'm going to be large enough in capital markets to execute trades for my for my clients, but I don't want to get too large. I think right. the problem is we don't have a, the larger banks that built the 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 global banking model. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no prescription for how you shrink one of those models. I agree with that. It's never been done uh, before. Give us the calendar here into the end of the year. They come back from Labor Day. Nobody's taken off August. They're all working wherever they are. They got to figure out structure, income statement, and figure out the bonuses 
every bank has to keep an upper 10%, upper 15% of bodies, where will we be January 1st? We'll be shrinking, right? We'll be shrinking. Exactly. And, and it may be single digit. It may not be OMG, you know, oh, the humanity may not be the phrase. But nevertheless, it's a shrinking banking system. Is that to the advantage of the boutiques? Of course. It's got to be. Uh, look at someone like a Lazard. I mean, yeah. They're doing perfectly well. I mean, yeah, obviously, they have a cyclical business. M&A goes up and down. But, you know, they don't have a capital. Uh, they, they're not carrying a balance sheet. And so you're seeing different models. You're seeing banks that are doing opportunity. We can think of Hong Kong HSBC. HSBC, um, their approach says we're going to have operating relationships with corporate corporations. And from those operating relationships, we're going to have a piece of capital markets. And that piece of capital markets can be profitable. So that sounds to me like Global Chemical Bank from the ages ago. Yeah. I mean, basically, that's it. What did HSBC learn when they enjoyed an American experiment 15 years ago? <laughs> that didn't work out, did it? Scale. Culture matters. Right. Culture matters. Cult exactly. Seriously, I was, yeah. I was screaming about this. Folks, I was screaming about this last night. Bloomberg 1200 Boston, I'm sorry. At Nino's on 58th Street, I had chicken jeter. I'm sorry. It's very good. You eat chicken jeter and then you fall over the bar onto the floor like that great catch that Derek Jeter made years ago. But but seriously, your HSBC ran up against a culture they weren't ready to deal with in their American soiree. Right. Culture and, matters. And we can think of it in terms of Deutsche as the is it was a classic culture issue. Bank of America with Merrill Lynch, another right. cl another culture issue, which is you know the. Should Moynihan, come on, come on, you're sell side right now. Did Mo should Moynihan sell Merrill Lynch, sell the jewel? Oh, I can't. You know, I think I, I think that one is is. Come a on, boiler up. Let's go. <laughs> um, no, I understand. Could you structure a retail uh, a, a standalone Merrill Lynch? Yes, you could structure a standalone Merrill mm -hmm. Lynch. The retail business is a very value, valuable business, but Moynihan knows it, and he's trying to well, integrate the yeah, retail business. Yeah. And you see that you know, kind of in the reverse side with uh, well, with Gorman. The, yeah, exactly. This has been wonderful, Brad Hintz. We, we got to do this. We have to have a Janet Yellen speech more often so Brad Hintz uh, can come in. He is with my original sponsor, the Stern School of New York University. Uh, good morning, Tom. We are here in uh, Jackson Hole with the St. Louis Fed President, Jim Bullard. And along with me is Kathleen Hayes from uh, Bloomberg Radio. Uh, good morning to both of you. Good morning to Jim. Thank you for getting up so early this morning. Uh, it's great uh, to be here. Let me ask you, uh, we've, we've heard your views on monetary policy quite a bit recently, but I want to get your views on the Fed itself. There is a critique of the Fed out there. Uh, that has grown in recent days, that you guys don't know what you're doing any, any longer, that the models don't work, the effort to generate inflation isn't working, and that it's time for a total rethink. Where would you put yourself in that debate? Uh, it's, I think it's time to rethink our normalization plans and the way we're presenting our normalization plans. If you look at that dot plot, which has all those dots going up at any moment, you know, 200 basis points, I think that's probably not the right characterization of what's going to happen uh, over the forecast horizon. So that's why we came up with this idea about let's not pretend we have a lot of certainty about where the long run outcome is for the U.S. economy. Let's make policy for where we are today 
which is a low productivity growth environment and a very low real rate of return on government paper. And those are the parameters that we're working with and then make the right monetary policy for that. And then keep an eye out and see if those things switch in the future. Well, Jim, it seems in a way, you know, after several decades of the Fed operating a very simple model, the economy's overheating, you raise rates. If it's slowing down, uh, you cut them. And yeah. now uh, this discussion of the low neutral rate, how much room to cut in the next recession, you moving to this new regime-based model. Have we come to the end of monetary policy as we as we have known it? Uh, I don't really think so. You know, you might think it was simple going back, but if you lived through it all like I did, <laughs> there were always a lot of issues uh, going on. Uh, you had the productivity speed up in the in the 1990s, and Greenspan had to make a call on that. You had, uh, you know, Latin American debt crisis. You had SNL crisis. So. Uh, dot-com boom. But you have all these things that you have, you've always got to be thinking about what's the environment. But one of the things people are talking about a lot now, and I was at a conference in the last week where a money manager in the audience said, what's going to happen in the next recession? I know in the past how to price what happens in the recession. The Fed cuts by four to 500 basis points. Yep. With the rate already so low and you're not in favor of uh, raising it until you see a shift, what's going to happen in the recession? Again, the Fed seems to be at sort of an impasse, almost a dead end. Yeah, I'm not one that talks about let's raise interest rates so that we can lower them later. Uh, I don't think that's a good way to go. Uh, if you look at this paper by uh, Dave Reifschneider, he's a board uh, staff person, he says there probably is quite a bit of ammunition out there. So I guess that's probably the, uh, the best way to look at it. Some of it would be lower rates. Some of it would be quantitative easing. Some of it would be forward guidance. So if we just uh, deployed the things that we've deployed last time, uh, we could probably get through a recession. But is your goal... Even even do well during the recession. Is yeah. your goal just to put a floor under a recession? Because you've done QE, you've done forward guidance, yeah. you've uh, cut rates to zero, and we still don't have any measurable inflation. Yeah, inflation's low, but it's not that low. It's, uh, you know, maybe half a percentage point or less uh, below our target. So well, the PCE is at nine-tenths right now. Headline, uh, yeah, headline. Which is your that's, goal uh, that's, uh, that's true. That's fair. Uh, but you know, some of that's driven by, well, energy prices and so on. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty low. Um, but unemployment has come down below 5%. We're basically right on target uh, for that. Inflation's a little low. We think it's going to come up. So we're really doing pretty well as far as our goal variables. Well, you, uh, but but you're Stan not generating inflation and we're not generating growth right now from monetary policy. Uh, growth I mean, is, you know, monetary policy does not drive growth in the medium term or the long run. It's a, it's a temporary, you can have a temporary effect, but that temporary effect wears off. And the, the longer, the medium term and longer run is driven by productivity trends and population trends and uh, labor force trends. So, uh, you know, those things need, if you want that to be better, and I do want it to be better, but you can't do that through monetary policy. Monetary policy is about cyclical uh, movements. So, Jim, um, in June, the last summary of economic projections, you flatlined your forecast. Yep. Uh, but we've had um, some interesting numbers since then. We've had two pretty good jobs numbers after the week May number. The GDP tracking that the Atlanta Fed does, a lot of the economists on Wall Street are doing, is looking for a growth of about 3.5% uh, on GDP in the third quarter. If you were going to make your projections right now, would you change? Is it possible the regime change you've been waiting for is going to start to unfold? 
Uh, no, I don't think so. The regime that we talked about is the low productivity growth regime, and labor productivity growth has only been about you know, one half of 1% over the last several years. We don't see that changing near term. And also another part of the regime is very low real rates of return on government paper. We don't see that changing anytime soon. So, um, so those are, are kind of the fundamentals. And then we say, okay, let's make optimal monetary policy given those two facts. And uh, that's what brings us to the 63 basis point uh, projection. However, we, do, you're, we are seeing more strengths in the economy. Is it possible that if this trend continues, even if the regime hasn't changed, yeah. but the growth numbers have picked up, that you're going to be in that camp saying, well, we better debate it pretty seriously well, in we'll, September, we'll, and we'll, if we don't we'll, move then, we'll, maybe move we'll in December. We'll keep our eye on it, but I haven't seen anything, anything in the data that suggests that these, this regime, those two factors are really changing in a fundamental way. It's true that tracking forecasts are up for the third quarter, some of them for GDP growth in the third quarter and an annual rate of 3%. But I would see that as kind of making up maybe for slower growth in the first half of the year. The year-over-year -year GDP growth rate in the U.S. is only 1.2%, and that's below-trend growth over the last year. So that's a, one of the reasons why we ditched our past uh, approach to this is that we kept forecasting, oh, we're going to have above-trend growth, and this is going to drive unemployment even lower. Well, we don't have above-trend growth now. So I think the cyclical dynamics have played out, and uh, we've, we're in this very low-growth regime. Do you think that the Fed's low-interest rate policy is contributing to that now because of the financial repression against savers, because of the fact that banks' profit margins are so low that they may not be interested in making loans right now? Would it be better to raise interest rates a little bit and maybe drive the economy through another channel? Well, I guess our basic idea is we're pretty close to our goals and uh, we're also pretty close to a neutral rate, which is going to be a low value. And, that's, and, and we're only talking about over the forecast horizon. We're not trying to tell you what's going to happen over five or ten years. We're only talking the next two years. I think that's probably the better way to think about it. Yeah. I want to ask you a bit about the theme of the conference, which is uh, you know, looking to the future, the Fed's toolkit, and having a resilient monetary policy framework. Negative rates, Jim Bullard. Where do you come down on that? You know, Japan's gone negative, very mixed results. Um, Rob Kaplan, Dallas Fed, it would be too disruptive to the U.S. banking system. What do you see? What do you and your team see at St. Louis? Uh, I'll be anxious to hear what the people have to say here at the conference on negative rates, but um, I'm not... I'm not too enthusiastic about them, and I don't think they're a likely outcome in the U.S. As I just described it earlier, we actually have quite a bit of firepower if we need it for a recession. I don't think we'd have to go in this direction of negative rates, which has had kind of mixed results, as you say, uh, worldwide. All right. We've been speaking with uh, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, Jim Bullard. Good frigid morning to you from Jackson, Wyoming, but uh, we actually are probably in an environment that Robert Kaplan of the Dallas Fed likes because uh, you're used to much more heat. Yeah, no, I'm glad to wear a jacket. It's a nice change of pace. <laughs> but you're getting a lot of heat here as a member of the Fed. Uh, the Fed under a lot of criticism lately for its monetary policies, which have not generated growth, not generated inflation. Yeah. The theme of this conference is, is a rethink, but in the short run, uh, what do you think needs to be done? And I, and I have the benefit of being able to answer this question with some objectivity because I've just been at the Fed for a year. 
But my own view is the Fed up to now has done uh, what it can and used aggressively its tools to try to generate growth and meet its dual mandate. I think the reality is we also need structural reform and fiscal policy to accompany monetary policy to meet the challenges we face. So I think people may be disappointed that monetary policy hasn't generated more growth, but it's designed to act along with structural policy and fiscal policy, and we haven't had that for seven years. And I think the period of monetary policy being the main game in town probably needs to come to an end. We need, we need a fuller range of tools. Larry Summers this morning, Kevin Warsh in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, both suggesting the Fed is vulnerable to its critics because its policies aren't working right now. You come from a Wall Street and an academic background. What are your friends telling you about Fed credibility now? Well, and it's interesting, and, and I know both the gentlemen you mentioned, one is a, a critical of the Fed, I think, because we're even talking about raising rates. That's Larry Summers. And Kevin is critical of the Fed because we're not raising rates more quickly. So I think it comes with the territory. Uh, I think the key thing in our job is to look at the facts, uh, understand conditions, do our work. We're very integrated with the business community and other leaders, communicate what we're seeing and act in a way that faces reality. And you're going to get criticism from both sides. Uh, again, I think, uh, to my eye, we need a broader range of tools. Many of the issues we face in the United States have to do with aging demographics, uh, high rates of disruption in industries, increased globalization, which makes us a little more vulnerable to China, uh, also high levels of debt to GDP, which we've been working off since the Great Recession. Many of these issues, like aging demographics, are best addressed through uh, policies that grow the workforce, create vocational training, infrastructure spending would be very helpful, and those policies, along with proper monetary policy, I think are needed. There doesn't seem to be any movement from the fiscal policymakers to right. do what you're talking right. about. In the absence of that, do you think the Fed feels compelled to try to go beyond its mandate and do more? I think that's the balance. That's the tension. Uh, at the moment, we're trying to... Uh, we're trying to address the situation as we see it, and we're not anticipating that there'll be other tools used. But I think part of our job, in addition to proper monetary policy, is to call out what we're seeing. And if we think there's a need for structural reform and fiscal policy, I think part of my job is to call it out, to, a, to flag it, and not be silent about it. Wall Street would like Janet Yellen to call out when you're going to raise interest rates in her, in her remarks today. Are they perhaps too reliant on the Fed right now? Do you think that uh, the, the, the Wall Street's putting too much pressure on the open market committee? Well, um, as someone who spent 30 years in the markets, I think sometimes it, pay, it pays to take a step back. What, what, I, what I've been saying, and I think what others have been saying at the Fed, but I'll comment for myself, is uh, probably the anticipated uh, path of rates going forward will be much flatter. Um, we've got a number of persistent headwinds. So even though I do think in the near term the, the, the case for removing some amount of accommodation has been strengthened, that's in the context of, I think, a much slower, flatter path of rate increases. And for business people out there and for people in the markets, I think the path of rates is just as important or more important 
than exactly the exact timing of when the next move is. Do you think the Fed has a communications problem in getting those views across? What you're saying is is sort of the consensus on the Fed, but you've got people interpreting the remarks of various Fed officials over the last couple of weeks as somebody says raise, somebody says stay, and nobody really yeah. knows what's going on. I, I mean, I think the Fed has to improve. We, we all have to improve our communication. You have to understand when you give a speech or you give an interview, a snippet of what you say may be taken, so it may make it look like there's a little more debate on certain issues than there is. But yeah, I think this this is an important challenge for the Fed. We have to improve our communication. That falls to all of us, but I think that's something we need to do. If you actually had the time to read all the Fed speeches and read the minutes, you get a much fuller picture, which is which is consistent with the the path that I just talked about. But often. When you watch television, you get snippets, and it, and it somehow it can create more confusion. And so I think we need to be cognizant of that and, and adjust our communication accordingly. You do come from Wall Street, as, uh, as both of us have mentioned. When you look at what's going on, do you think uh, there are distortions in the markets these days from monetary policy? I think there's a cost to having rates this low for this long. There are reasons to have rates this low, but the, but the cost is it hurts savers. There's no question. If you have any money in, in, uh, in savings, you can't earn on it. Second, it causes people to take more risk. And people that n- would have one type of asset allocation are pushed to take more risk. Institutions are taking more risk. It can create imbalances. And so I think there are some of those imbalances today. My experience is there's the imbalances you see, and sometimes it's a lot easier to see these imbalances in hindsight. But they're building and I see them in certain places. That's why we've, for example, in the commercial real estate area, from a macro prudential point of view, we've tried to tamp down bank exposures on commercial real estate because we see some of these imbalances. So they're there. You're the president of the Dallas Fed. Dallas is at the center of the oil markets. Oil's at the center of the inflation debate. Yeah. What are your economists and contacts telling you is going to happen? Uh, I think uh, we're moving toward global supply-demand balance. Some people think we're there right now, but we, we believe we'll be uh, in balance sometime in the first or second quarter of this year. We still have record global inventories to work down, but because we're moving toward balance, we would expect prices uh, to firm. And firm means they may not go up a lot, but I don't think there's a, I don't think you're going to see a, a big down leg either. You'll see volatility, but I think in, in, in 17, 18, 19, you'll see firming. I think you'll slowly see rig count coming back. One of the issues is in the shale industry, the break-even cost is as high as $60 or more, and so we're well below that. But I think as you see prices firm, you'll see somewhat more rig count but I think from an inflation point of view, to the extent this pulled down inflation, my guess is it'll be more neutral going forward. That should help with business investment. One of the big subtractions from that has been in the oil industry. But in general, yeah. companies seem reluctant to put money to work. Yeah. Uh, is anybody in your district telling you that's going to change? So here are the issues that to me are driving that. One is weak expected demand, particularly globally. People have to understand uh, as much as half of S&P revenues come from outside the United States. So that's an anticipation of weak demand as a factor. And also every single industry is getting, I mentioned earlier, disrupted. Amazon versus retail stores, uh, Uber versus taxis, Airbnb versus hotels are examples people know, but it's happening in every single industry and it's hurting pricing power of companies and it's causing CEOs that I talk to just to be more cautious. I think this is 
manageable. I think energy firming will help CapEx. You saw the durable goods orders was stronger. So I think you'll, I'm hopeful you'll see some improvement in cap spending, but some of this uncertainty comes from some persistent forces that are going to be with us for a while. Robert Kaplan, president of the Dallas Fed. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mike. Good to talk to you. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. And now to Jackson Hole, Kathleen Hayes with our Michael McKee on a beautiful morning. And a beautiful morning it is. Michael McKee, Kathleen Hayes, uh, at least it's not smoky, Michael, like it was. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, the, the view has gotten a lot better. Uh, Dennis Lockhart <laughs> has been up in the Rocky Mountains with me for the past three days fishing, and it, it certainly does look better than it has the, the fire smoke uh, moving away, the haze moving out. But is the haze still there in terms of monetary policy, in terms of trying to figure out when the best time to move on rates is? Yeah, good metaphor there, Mike. Yeah, I, I worked on that one. <laughs> um, well, I, I I would say that there, you know, there are elements of the data we're seeing that are mixed, you know, and we're we're in a moderate growth economy, and I think it's natural when you have an economy that's kind of making relatively slow progress that you're going to see uh, data that uh, you can take in different directions, and so yes, there's still some haze. So, uh, but speaking of, of the haze and the uncertainty, the labor market growth has slowed. If you look at more of a, a quarterly basis or a monthly average, 150,000 versus 200,000. Inflation is still pretty far from the target. So uh, in a time of such uncertainty, and that's one of the things so many people are talking about, and, and the Fed not knowing quite what the road looks like, is there, why move now? Is there any rush to move? You have said recently that you could see one, even two rate hikes. Are you looking at September? Well, you first all I, that uncertainty. I, I can see two rate hikes uh, as possible but when I look at the calendar. We have three more meetings this year, so that, that's possible. And what I've said recently is that um, I can imagine circumstances if we continue to see the economy perform as it has been, in my opinion, um, the, uh, at least one this year. Now, uh, none of that is locked in, in my, in my thinking. Uh, we just have to see how the economy seems to be performing. I don't think the committee is risking a lot by being cautious and gradual. I don't think we're behind the curve in terms of either inflation or even risking a big financial instability event. So uh, I think the bywords that the public should understand is cautious and gradual, and there's no gun to our head. Einstein famously did not say, in definition of insanity, is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. People think he did, Who but said still. That? Who said that? <laughs> we'll have to figure that out. Somebody said that. But, but the Fed has kept interest rates low now for eight years, and we're still not generating growth. We're still not generating inflation. Is it time for a rethink of what monetary policy can do and how it works? Well, I, I think you've seen signals recently from a couple of my colleagues that they are beginning to rethink things. Uh, John Williams made a, a talk as, as well as a paper that he posted on his website that suggested maybe we should be rethinking some of the basic assumptions around, uh, around policy and, 
Uh, Jim Bullard has taken quite a different approach than the rest of the committee. Uh, I welcome these uh, suggestions that periodically, particularly if things are not sort of gelling perfectly, that you go back to your basic assumptions and think them through again. So I think both of them have made a good contribution. Do you trust the Atlanta Fed's models? Which are oh, looking pretty yeah, good right now, you right? Know, You've got 3.4%. Dave, I'll take this is for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I view models as input to a decision process that necessarily requires some judgment. I don't let the models tell me what to think or what to do, but they are useful inputs. And we can use models to, do, to test hypotheses, to, to run through a certain set of assumptions and see what the model tells us. And so they're, they're very useful. And I have an outstanding team in Atlanta that does the modeling. So Dennis, are the Fed's uh, dot plot projections or even just the, you know, the, the, the forecast of interest increase becoming a liability, is the Fed losing credibility by predicting rate hikes that then don't come true, forecasts that have to be cut back. Is this, is, 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 well, are we seeing the end of the usefulness of forward guidance? I'm certainly not going to confirm loss of credibility. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think it should be taken that way. But there is a nuanced point that needs to be made, and that is the dot plots are not a commitment. They're not a prediction of what's going to happen. They're a forecast, and the forecasts are always subject to adjustment. Well, we've had a long period of time in which people have suggested the dot plots confuse them on Wall Street. Should you get rid of them? Uh, is it useful to even have? Well, we should always be working on how to improve our communication so that uh, everyone gets the information they need. The dot plots are 17 individuals' views uh, in advance of a meeting with the opportunity to adjust the, the dot plots or the dots after the meeting. So that you should be taken for what they are. They're, they're not a consensus of the committee. They're what individuals are forecasting. When you look at GDP, the consumer, thank goodness, has been mm -hmm. holding up quite well. Yeah. Uh, business investment, though, has been weak for a prolonged period of time. Mm -hmm. And there's an argument being made that uncertainty over where the Fed is heading, a view that Rates are so low now, but they're certainly not going to stay this low. Uh, are holding back investment, that there's a sense that the rate of returns are so low that there's no need to go longer term. And that's exactly what this economy is lacking and needs right now. Longer term mm -hmm. investments that produce, raise the productivity, create more jobs, etc. Well, I absolutely share your view on business fixed investment. Uh, in fact, in my outlook, I am assuming some uptick in business investment in the second half and through 2017. Not a lot, but some. And that really is an essential point to the picture evolving that gives me some confidence in, in uh, uh, adjusting the policy rate. Yes, uncertainty is a factor. Perhaps uncertainty about policy is a factor. But there are a lot of other uncertainties out there. Long-term fiscal balance of the country, conceivably the election uh, uncertainty around that is having some effect. Um, international developments of various kinds. I think when you when I talk to business contacts, and principally in the southeast, they do cite uh, uncertain conditions as reasons for being cautious about capital expenditures. So, uncertainty is clearly a factor. What are they telling you about uh, their investment plans and their hiring plans and their views of inflation going forward? We hear a lot from Wall Street economists, but what are the people on the ground in the Atlanta region saying? Um, 
They are saying that uh, they continue to invest, but for cost takeout, for productivity gains, very few are saying we are investing to place a big bet on the future that, that the economy is going to be a lot bigger and that demand is going to grow. So what we're getting from the business community as of now is uh, not a lot of confirmation of the assumption in my outlook that we're going to see a pickup. Uh, there is a certain amount of continuing investment at any time, but what we're really looking for is expansionary investment. That is, people who believe that uh, they should be investing for the future. Speaking of the future, that's what this uh, conference is all about. It's about redesigning, looking at monetary mm -hmm. policy frameworks that are resilient and can deal with the future. In the present, we've seen central banks around the world keeping rates low or moving them negative. We've seen bond purchases like we've never seen. We've seen Japan buy ETFs and more. And yet, the needle on inflation is not budging much at all. In some cases, it's still even falling mm -hmm. further. Dennis, are we at the end of, of one phase of monetary policy, kind of at the end of monetary policy as we knew it? Is, is this a whole new approach? Is it called for here? Are we in a brave new world? That's your question. <laughs> Um, I think the, the, the circumstances are, are, are quite extraordinary uh, with all the different policy uh, efforts that have taken place around the world, some of which are historically unprecedented. Uh, we operate now with a very large balance sheet and we have to think about uh, how long we're going to be dealing with those conditions. Uh, the subject matter of this, of this symposium I think is perfectly appropriate and that is what are the what are the what are the what's the framework in the future? All right, thank you very much, Dennis Lockhart, the president of the Atlanta Fed. Thanks for joining us thank this you morning. Here. This is a rare treat. Glenn Hubbard goes 24-7 on duties including rebuilding and nurturing and gaining strength at the Columbia Business School, where he is dean. Uh, and folks, really, we've got first-hand knowledge of it at surveillance as members of our team have darkened the door of Hubbard's Columbia. Uh, but also, he has been a public servant, typically with Republican presidents, and also has been a prolific writer. Glenn Hubbard joins us now from Hubbard. Dean Hubbard, good morning. Good morning. Um, I, I want to try to get away from the when are they going to raise rates malarkey and actually talk about where we are right now. One of the jewels of this crisis was a book you wrote with Tim Kaine, Balance. How close is America to an imbalance or to instability? Well, we definitely have a lot of imbalance, Tom. We People focus on the cyclical recovery, which has been there, but we still have labor force participation that's too low, productivity that's too low, investment that's too low, and a long-term fiscal crisis. And no one in Washington seems to want to talk about those things, and nor do our presidential candidates want to talk enough about those things. Talking about them, and, and again, we're falling back on central bankers to give guidance. One of the themes we've heard the last 48 hours on Bloomberg Surveillance is don't get your hopes up about a fiscal solution. Everyone's talking about it. I would assume Chair Yellen will allude to it uh, today. Do you have any faith, whoever wins, that we're going to get fiscal assistance? Well, I'd be naive, you know, if I said Thank it would you. be obviously yes. 
However, if you think about what we need, were the economy to slip into recession or to address these long-term concerns, it is fiscal. After the election, even though I don't expect some sort of grand solution, I do expect a conversation around a handful of areas, business or at least corporate tax reform, infrastructure, and work support, EITC support. Those three things could still form the core of interesting fiscal policy. Is anything at Jackson Hole or in your teaching of economics to Columbia, and folks, just remember with an MBA program, there's no such thing as too much economics. We all know that. (laughs) But, but Glenn, in economics, third edition, Hubbard and O'Brien, is any of this in there? I don't think so. Yeah, well, we're actually up to seventh uh, edition for Hubbard O'Brien. And, yeah, it's definitely front and center. That it's That's a uh, freshman economics book, and there yeah. are long-term challenges that economies face, and policymakers are grappling with them. I mean, a lot of what's happening here mm-hmm. at Jackson Hole is discussion of new monetary policy frameworks. What I just wish is that we saw discussions of fiscal policy frameworks, too. Right. Not the Fed's problem, but it is the country's problem. Well, you've been a leader on that, and from the right, you've been someone those on the left listen to and respect in terms of fiscal solutions, and I agree with you. It's a bit silent uh, right now. Within the parlor game of Jackson Hole, Mr. Bullard has the high ground, I'll suggest, with a regime to review folks instead of a forecast, which Glenn Hubbard has done for the Oval Office. And instead of doing forecasts, we would establish an existing regime and sort of wait until the next regime comes along. Is, is the Bullard modest paper, and, and Bullard admits that, is a Bullard paper worth further study or do we need to stick with Hubbard-like forecasts? You know, I think we need to do both. I don't think you'll ever be out of the forecasting business, but I do think there's something to be studied about leaving regimes in place uh, for a period of time. I think what the Fed is grappling with is how to use monetary policy to deal with structural problems, and the answer to that is it can't. Within this, uh, Glenn, let's just go quickly here to the speech, and then I want to move on. What will you listen for from Chair Yellen today? Well, I'd be surprised if uh, Janet Yellen makes news, at least as economists would see it. That's not really the purpose of such a speech. But I do think she wants to respond to critics about uh, where the Fed is, what the Fed wants to do, and Mm. to reassure people that the Fed has tools. And she's absolutely right. The Fed still has tools for something to happen. They're just not the best tools. Um, I want to finish up, of course, I have to, uh, Dr. Hubbard, with the idea of our present politics. You are not actively supporting Mr. Trump. You wrote Seeds of Destruction with Peter Navarro of Irvine. He is supporting Trump economics. What value do you see in the little bit of policy we've heard from from Mr. Trump? Well, one thing I will say is that Donald Trump is asking good questions. If you look at his tax plan and regulatory plan, there are interesting things there. He's also asking the question of what could we do to help people who are left behind by certain policies. I don't think the answers are necessarily the right ones, but I give him credit for really starting this debate. What I moan about on both sides is that I'm not hearing the kind of solutions that are both realistic Mm -hmm. politically and will actually fix the problem. On productivity in my chart today on TV, which I'm sure you saw, Glenn, at 4 a.m. 
uh, uh, Colorado <laughs> time uh, is. I was uh, up, by the way. <laughs> at least three decade, uh, three de- you were fishing, three decade <laughs> look uh, at real GDP in the four year presidential moving average. It's down 58% from morning in America. Yep. From the late 90s, we've gone from a four handle down to 1.9% four year moving average. What's the Hubbard prescription for President Clinton to get that moving higher? Well, it breaks into two things. One's productivity, one's hours worked. On productivity, it's really tax reform and regulatory reform and real support for innovation. Uh, I do give her credit for mentioning infrastructure. I think her program's pretty modest for uh, an economy the size of ours. On hours worked, there are lots of ways we discourage work. Uh, for young people, for older people, for secondary workers, a lot of that is a tax mm-hmm. story and a health care reform story. Glenn Hubbard, thank you so much. Dean Hubbard at Columbia Business School. Uh, always interesting. I can't say enough about the set of books he's put together over the years. It's wonderful when you see both Ken Rogoff and Professor Taylor of Stanford rave about Glenn Hubbard's uh, writing. Michael, wonderful to have you back. Did the PhDs in Jackson Hole care about Michael Pond's world? Do they care about something as esoteric as the five-year view and then five years forward from there of inflation? Well, Fed officials really think that it's, uh, that inflation expectations are a big driver of inflation down the road. However, they've been discounting uh, market signals on inflation expectations for the past year and a half because they haven't been telling a story that the Fed likes. The, the market's been telling a, a story of a loss of Fed credibility, a loss of global central bank credibility in yeah. their willingness or ability <clears throat> to create inflation. One word that we've really been working with today is efficacy, which is a bit a squishy, mushy word. A guy like Michael Pond, folks, would never use the word efficacy. He'd be thrown out in the street at Barclays. But it does lead, Michael, to the math world that you live in of reaction functions. If the Fed or if Chair Yellen says we will do this, is the market ready to react to what they say? Or is the distortion so great even that could be odd? Well, it depends on how much caveats uh, she puts around the we are likely to do this. So she, she'd never likely, she probably wouldn't come out and say we, we will do this. But so, for example, coming into the September FOMC meeting, we think the next week's payroll re- report, the employment report, will be very important in that decision. Um, so it really, in our view, the, the emphasis, um, whether yeah. she focuses on the labor market or whether she focuses on the fact that they've been missing on their inflation target, where that emphasis lies is very mm. important to the markets here. How does currency help you? I mean, that's tangential to what you do, but I'm sorry. The textbooks say, no, it's not. Currencies are linked to Michael's Pond's uh, world. Are, are we getting a restrictive Fed even without the Fed acting? Well, I think that that's what has happened over the past year and a half, Tom, where every time the Fed talks up uh, rate hikes, the dollar starts to move, and that starts to slow the economy, uh, weaken inflation, and the Fed has to backtrack. Exactly. And so to some extent, currencies have been a governor on the Fed. I think that's extremely well said. It seems, you know, granted, he's got the distraction of Brexit, but Governor Carney has been more blunt. 
and said, look, there's no inflation. We didn't get that from President Dudley of the New York Fed a number of days ago, did we? We got a lot of hope, right? Even from Vice Chair Fisher, uh, which the market may put a, put a bit more weight on, we, uh, he said that uh, inflation was in, quote-unquote, hailing distance of their target. Um, that, to, to me, shows a bit, uh, a bit too much complacency uh, of allowing inflation to run consistently below mm-hmm. their target, as it has for the past eight years. The Fed has missed uh, 89 times out of 93 over the past. Uh, several years or, uh, on months uh, on their PCE core inflation okay. rate. When do they begin to bring the green light on the acclaimed Bloomberg go chart down? And do they do it with a, a substantial second derivative acceleration? Or are we going to be in for a gradual glide out to 2018? Again, it really depends on whether they put this emphasis on the labor markets, which look uh, fairly fairly healthy, um, or the, their inflation target. Uh, if they continue to, to focus on the labor markets, then we're, we're likely to see a Fed tightening. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're still looking for them to uh, tighten in, in September. But if they don't, that means that they're, they're focused more on the inflation target. Right. And that may mean we don't see a, a hike for, for several quarters. Well, I like this idea of September and Never. And, you know, December, 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 December. But the idea uh, here, Michael Pond, is if we pass on September, is that in the market now? I mean, Barclays watches positioning from institutions. Uh, is that there now? Well, the market's priced for about a 35% chance of a, of a hike in September. That's moved quite a bit. Uh, that was mm. near zero following the, the Brexit vote uh, in late June. The, the market is priced for a Fed hike uh, sometime this year, about 50%. Right. Uh, but that could move to, to next December uh, pretty quickly if Fed officials yeah. backtrack from their recent haw- hawkish rhetoric. I'm watching our internal camera signal to a beautiful Grand Tetons and Michael Pond, I'm watching President Dudley uh, standing next to Chair Yellen with Vice Chairman Fisher. Uh, Chair Yellen uh, in white, uh, President Dudley in the typically dour black of the New York Fed. And and, uh, I believe that that may not be Stan Fisher. His back is to me. I stand corrected. That may not be the vice chairman of the Fed. It looks like him, but I really, to be honest, can't tell. Anyways, Chair Yellen is taking in the vista. This is always a tradition at Jackson Hole for uh, the chairman of the Fed to take a promenade. Here they go. They're turning around now. This is this is an ancient tradition. Photographers and Michael McKee are tethered with Kathleen Hayes by chain to the wall of the lodge so they cannot go out and ask smart aleck questions. And so Dudley and Yellen in the center and Vice Chairman Fisher uh, to the right uh, walking off after the obligatory photo shoot. I believe I see Michelle Smith in the distance who handles public relations for the Fed, keeping away the Barclays representatives from asking rude questions of Chair Yellen. Uh, my, you know, Michael Pond, I'm sorry. It's like a beauty pageant, isn't it? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know if uh, her wearing white is any indica- indication of her dumbishness today. <laughs> Very good. We'll have to see from her speech. Out in front of the embargoed speech of Michael Pond. I'm going to let you go. Michael Pond, thank you so much for your value earlier in the week, and particularly today. Mr. Pond uh, looks at inflation and measurements of inflation for uh, Barclays. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.